Well, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer right now and let's ask Jesus to bless us, create us a clean heart and to really speak to us. Lord, thank you so much for the Sabbath. It's time to appreciate nature. God, even here in Modesto, Lord, we, we just thank you, God, for just the, the beauty of nature creation that still speaks to us of your love. Father in heaven, our prayer is that today we would see Jesus. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, this is going to be a very interesting sermon. And uh, believe right now it's part one. There may be a part two. We'll see how things go. We're going to be taking a good look at Bible prophecy. Now, many times when you hear about prophecy, people sometimes groan and think, Oh, no, you're going to be talking about end-time events. And who wants to hear about end-time events? Right? Well, a few of you guys. But for the normal people... I'm just kidding. We're all normal here, right? But for most of us, right... Many times that when we hear a perspective of end time events, it can be very intimidating, it can be very scary. But we need to learn to start seeing Jesus through all of this. Remember what I said to you a couple weeks ago? The study of prophecy is not the study of politics. Amen. It may include what may be happening in the political world, but it is not primarily the study of politics. The study of prophecy is actually the study of Jesus. And prophecy does three things. Number one, it reveals who Jesus is. Amen? Number two, it reveals what Jesus is going to do. And number three, it reveals how Jesus will accomplish the things he wants to do. Outside of this frame of reference, prophecy can be meaningless. Jesus actually spoke about Bible prophecy and he said, search the scripture. He said, look throughout all the scripture, he says, for they are which testify of me. Amen. And so when we're looking at Bible prophecy, we need to see more and more of Jesus, right? Jesus needs to become more and more of what we read, what we see, and what we study throughout all of Scripture. We're going to be taking a good look at something found in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. But before we turn there, I want to share with you an interesting story that takes place in the book of Ezekiel. Very interesting story. And it's going to set the stage for Matthew 24. In the book of Ezekiel, we hear a lot about God's warnings to his people. They were messing around with idolatry. In fact, when you look up the word abomination, it appears over and 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 over in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, the word desolation or desolate appears also in the book of Ezekiel over and over and over again. What happens is the children of Israel had been falling into idolatry over and over and over again. And so God begins to give a series of messages through the prophet Ezekiel. One of the things that Ezekiel sees in vision, he sees the Mount of Olives. What does he see? The Mount of Olives. And he sees the glory of God called the Shekinah glory, which was the presence of the Lord found over the Ark of the Covenant. And he sees the glory of the Lord, now pay attention to these words, departing from the temple. And the Bible says that the glory of the Lord was upon Mount, the Mount of Olives and was almost, in a sense, hesitant about leaving. 
And what happens is, the Bible points out, because of the idolatry and even the sun worship that was happening in throughout Israel, that the Shekinah glory hesitantly, reluctantly, there upon the Mount of Olives, finally departs. Are you listening to me so far? The reason why this is extremely important is because when you read Matthew chapter 23, it starts off with Jesus leaving the temple. And he even says to them, your house is left desolate. And do you know what you find in Matthew chapter 24? Jesus on top of the Mount of Olives. The real Shekinah glory there. And what Jesus begins to give in Matthew chapter 24 is a very interesting sermon or discussion about end time events. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This is a very interesting chapter. Often used in Bible prophecy, but we're going to take a good look at it today. Matthew chapter 24. We're actually going to start with verse 1. Remember, as we're seeing this parallel, we see the Shekinah glory on the Mount of Olives because of all the abominations that were taking place. And then finally, leaving. And here we see Jesus leaving the temple in Matthew 23. The end of Matthew 23. Matthew 24, he's on the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says something quite interesting in chapter 24, verse 1. It says these words. Then Jesus went and what? departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him all the buildings of the temple and he said to and Jesus said to them do you see all these things assuredly i say to you not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down verse 3 now as he sat on the mount of what olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age what's very interesting is that the disciples could not imagine a world without the temple to them the temple represented the anchor of the jewish identity it represented god's approval upon their nation And so when Jesus makes this very remarkable statement, he says, see this temple, not one stone is going to be left on top of this. All of a sudden, you know the only thing they could equate with the destruction of the temple? The end of the world. Are you guys tracking with me, yes or no? And so what Jesus does, he begins to talk about the destruction of the temple and of the end of the world, combining these events, and specifically addresses the questions that the disciples were asking. What's very interesting is, before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the book of Hebrews was written. When you actually study out the book of Hebrews, do you know what the book of Hebrews is doing? It's constantly talking about the earthly sanctuary and then the heavenly sanctuary. Always, over and over again, it's pointing the believers to the heavenly sanctuary. What's happening in heaven? What's happening in the heavenly sanctuary? Why? Because God was trying to lead even his own people away from this understanding of an earthly sanctuary to a heavenly sanctuary. Are you tracking so far? Yes or no? Good. We're laying a good context. Okay, so here's what happens. The disciples say, wait a minute, what's it going to be like when this happens, when the end of the world happens? And so what Jesus begins to do, he begins to list some things. Look what he says in the very next part of this. Matthew 24, starting with verse 4. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of war. See that you are not what? Troubled, for all these things must come to pass. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And then verse 8, he drops a bomb on them and he says, Oh, and by the way, it's just the beginning. Now what's very interesting, if you go to various religions that actually have an end time schema, many of them actually have natural disasters. Cataclysmic events happening before the destruction of the world. And so what Jesus does, he simply says, oh yeah, and by the way, I know you're well aware of this. Did you know during the disciples' time, there were false prophets, there were false messiahs? And so when Jesus was actually saying, hey, guess what, there's going to be false messiahs, this was nothing new to the disciples. In fact, they were expecting this to be part of the prophecy lineup. They were expecting end time events to be part of the prophecy lineup. And you know what Jesus does? And he says, yeah, you know all this stuff that's going to happen? He says, by the way, I just got to tell you something. That's only the beginning. What you believed about the end of the world, he was saying, that's only the beginning. That's just the beginning of what's going to happen. And you can imagine the disciples sitting there right now just go, only the beginning? Wait a minute. I thought when we talked about the end of the world, I thought that was it. Do you know if you go out into the world, did you know much of the world has end time themed movies? And do you know what you'll find in many of these end time themed movies? Cataclysmic events, destruction by natural disasters, And a bunch of chaos. In other words, Jesus was not saying something completely new to the disciples. Sure, they did believe in a kind of Messiah reign that would come eventually and change things. But they also understood there would be this great day of the Lord where there would be destruction. And so even the world understands that right before the end, it's not going to look like a pretty picture. But Jesus says, yo, here's the thing. I want you guys to understand something. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Now some of you are thinking to yourself, I don't feel very happy right now. You just hang on. You're going to feel worse by the end. Okay. No, I'm teasing. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be what? Offended. Sounds like our world today, huh? Then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then notice what he says. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive what? Many. Here Jesus begins to describe more and more of things that are going to be destructive. And he says, you want to know what the real issue is? He says, the worst part of these end time events, he says, it's not even the natural disasters that are happening around you. He says, the worst thing is going to be when people who you love, people who you cared about, will turn their back on you. They will be offended. They will betray you. And they will do things that will lead to your death. Lord, have mercy. You can imagine some of these disciples hearing this and probably cringing even more, saying, we should never have asked this question. 
You know, one thing I began to notice as I was studying this out is there seemed to be a common theme through all the things that Jesus was talking about. And do you know what that is? Agitation. There is an intense agitation upon the world. The world is full of strife. It's full of a lot of pain. It's full of a lot of suffering. It's full of a lot of agitation. Have you ever had one of those old washing machines? I know many people have these like nuclear-powered washing machines that look like car engines. But I'm talking about the old school one where you actually go to the top of it and you open up the lid like that. Right? I have one of those. It was donated to me. I opened up this washing machine... And what happens is you notice this post right in the middle and it's just turning and it's just turning back and forth. And what you begin to see with those clothes that are in the washing machine is that it's being agitated. There's an agitation that's happening. And this agitation is cleaning off the filth that's on these clothes. And so what we're seeing at the very end of time, Jesus here is describing what's it going to look like right before he gets to the, he comes back. He says essentially there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And you look in our world today. Now you're thinking to yourself, this sounds just like an evangelistic sermon. You just hang on tight. A lot of strife, a lot of pain in this world. You turn on the news and you think, man, we have just reached the climax. Seems like it can't get better. Worse. You go to the very next weekend, it's like, oh man, we just reached the pinnacle of bad stuff in our world. Go to the very next weekend, it's just like, oh my goodness, could it get any worse? Until you go to the next week and it's worse. Are you tracking with me, yes or no? Here's the point I'm trying to get to. Is that right before the second coming, we are to see sin reach a pinnacle of what it really is. And what it really is, is this extreme agitation that eventually leads to destruction. Do you know that the church is supposed to model something that's different from the world? In other words, the way the world is attempting to handle things should be much different than the way the church is attempting to handle things. Do you know what Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He says, look, if you can't even judge among yourselves, he said, how will you even judge the world? And then he says even a step further, how could you even judge angels if you can't handle these simple things? You know what I begin to realize more and more as social media has been growing? Is that there is a lot of things that are designed to give an immediate reaction. Designed to shock you. Designed to do things to you that as soon as you read it, as soon as you hear it, you want to react. And do you know what happens when you begin to react? The problem starts. Do you know what James actually says is the cause of wars? What does he say is actually the cause of wars? Does anybody know? Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to show you what the cause of war is according to the book of James. Everybody take your finger like this. Reach into your mouth and pull this out. What is that? Somebody's like, it's taste buds. No, it's not taste buds. It's your tongue. James actually says the cause of wars is tongue. Is the tongue. And so what we're seeing more and more is the use of the tongue. 
And we're seeing this strife that is developing. But do you know what Jesus was saying about his movement? He said, look, by this shall all men know you're my disciples if you can speak evil of one another. Is that what he said? If you have love for one another. You know, the Lord's been really teaching me because I tend to be someone who's very reactionary. In other words, when I hear something, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm the kind of person when I read, up, read something and I'll be like, I'll actually stand up and I'll walk away and I'll be like, I've had enough of this. And I'll walk right back. You read something in the news, you're just like, oh my goodness, this is driving me insane. Thank God I'm the only one like that, right? But you know, every day I've been reading the book of Proverbs and I really recommend that. You want to learn about wisdom? Read the book of Proverbs one chapter a day. God will teach you so much wisdom. So I've been reading the book of Proverbs, and over and over again, God's been teaching me something about communication. And it's these two powerful Proverbs. Here they are. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, but that his heart may express... You know, one day I had a good friend come up to me, and he says, Anel, I'm struggling with something. I said, what are you struggling with? He says, I got into this issue with somebody... And he says, I'm wrestling with two things. I said, what are you wrestling with? He says, I'm wrestling with understanding and being understood. And he says, which one do you think is necessary? And I thought about it and I was like, you've got to be understood first. And he's like, that doesn't sound right. Both are actually necessary. But what takes a priority over being understood is understanding. Well, how do you understand? Look what the very next proverb says. Very interesting. Only by pride comes contention, but with the well advised is what? Do you know what understanding does? Understanding actually gathers information and becomes informed about things. Instead of being someone who's quick to react, quick to, to speak. Quick to react, quick to do something. And that's what the world wants and that's what the world is doing. God is actually saying something. You need to stop, take a step back and say, wait a minute. Am I well advised about the situation or am I just accepting one side of it? More and more as our communication in our world begins to grow. As globalization begins to grow and intensify all over the world. Our communication has got to become even more Christ-like. Can you say amen to that? The best way is to take the advice of Proverbs. It's to say, wait a minute. Am I being understood? Or am I understanding here? Am I well advised? Or is pride reacting here? Friends, I have wrestled with this over and over again in my own heart. And I realize Jesus needs to clean this. He needs to clean this in each one of your hearts as well. Because the reason why there are wars and rumors of wars, because James says it's because of the tongue. It's because of the tongue, how quick it is to fire out. Did you know that World War I was started by the tongue? World War Tongue. World War, World War Tongue, sorry. World War I. It's been a long Sabbath morning already, huh? But Jesus is teaching us something that we need to apply these principles more and more in our lives. And we will begin to see what Jesus wanted for his church. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. 
Amen? But notice what Jesus says next. He begins to go through this series of end-time events. And then he says something quite remarkable, Matthew 24, verse 15. This is what we're going to hone in on. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of what? Spoken by who? Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, many of us have been to a prophecy seminar and say, I know what that's all about. We're going to look into this a little bit more. Jesus begins to describe what's happening in our world with the agitation. He begins to describe what's happening, you know, with God's people. And then he says, but the one thing we need to be very careful about as he's talking about this and addressing the question of the disciples is this. He says, look, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by who? Daniel. By the way, where is the book of Daniel found? It's found where? It's found where? Here's the thing. It's found in the Old Testament. And you know what we say when it's found in the Old Testament? There's a feeling that comes to your mind, that comes to many people's minds, like, Old Testament? Old stuff. Now imagine this. Imagine if you actually had a pair of shoes, and you labeled one pair of shoes, the old shoes, and one pair of shoes, the new shoes. Which one of those shoes would you like to wear more? Say, for example, when you're on a date with your wife... You're taking the pastor out to dinner. What would you think? What would you say? What if your spouse came home to you one day and said, Hey, hey, I just bought an old car. Would you be like, Oh my goodness. Or would you be better if it's like, Hey, I just brought home a car for you. It's a new car. You'd be like, I want the new car. Because there's something associated with the word old. And that is this. If it's old, it's diminished in Usefulness. By the way, I want you to know something that is not inspired in your Bible. This is not inspired by God. Do you guys see what this is? What is this? Yeah, I know it's a paper. What is this? It's a paper that's in everyone's Bible that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. That paper is not inspired by God. In other words, what we've done with this piece of paper, we've separated the Old Testament from the New Testament, when in fact the scriptures were to be this continuum from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, speaking about what Christ or Christ is, what he's doing, and how he'll accomplish this. Are you tra- track with me so far, yes or no? And if you are bold, so one of my friends says, you can tear that out. Some of you are like, no, I can't do it. It's, inspired. it's not inspired by God. We understand that. And so when we're looking at the scriptures, and when Jesus taught the scriptures, he was referring many times to the, the testament <laughs> that existed before the book of Matthew, right? He was referring to the Old Testament scriptures. It is a continuum all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And so when he's referring to it, he's like, look, let me teach you something. And he says, let me show something from the book of Daniel. 
And so he begins to share something from the book of Daniel, found in Daniel chapter 7, found in Daniel chapter 11. And he talks about this strange event that's kind of worded in a very interesting way. He says, wherefore will you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet? Whoever reads, let him understand. Standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We know very well from Bible prophecy, when you put together the gospel of Luke, that this event was referring to the actual, literal destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. In fact, what Luke, Luke chapter 21 verse 20 says these words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by what? Armies. Notice what he says next. Then know that it's what? Desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea what? Flee to the mountains. Let's read it one more time. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, well, what does that mean, Jesus? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Luke says it. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by what? Armies. Then know that it's what? Desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What Jesus was describing was a very strange event that began in A.D. 68. Almost 40 years after Christ resurrected and ascended to heaven. The Christians had tried to reach out to Jerusalem over and over again. This was to be essentially the linchpin you can say for all of Judaism right here. What took place in Jerusalem? The temple itself. The anchor of that economy. And Jesus describes an event where eventually it would be destroyed. And so the Christians reached out to that place over and over again. But something happened A.D. 68. There was an insurrection, a rebellion against the Roman authority. So what happened, led by Cestius, A.D. 68, they surrounded Jerusalem. About 20,000 soldiers. They began to siege Jerusalem. It's very interesting. The kinds of details that came out by the Jewish historian Josephus and others about what took place. Really want to challenge you, read the first chapter of Great Controversy. By the time you are done reading that chapter, you will be not able to talk. It will lead you speechless. What happened in AD 68, they began to siege that that whole city. And that city had just this... Um, invincible wall system that was set up. They had food that could last for years. And during this siege, something took place. For some apparent reason, the armies decided to retreat. And as they were retreating, many of the Jewish soldiers actually got together inside Jerusalem. They went out and they attacked the back of that Roman guard, killed about 6,000 Roman soldiers. And it looked like they won. But Jesus gave a very special warning to the Christians. He said, look, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he said, flee into the what? Into the mountains. And so what happened is all the Christians decided to exit that place. They exited that place. And they left. Rome came back, this time led under Vespian's son, Titus. Thousands upon thousands of soldiers, and they besieged Jerusalem. But it is horrifying what took place there. I mean, it is absolutely disgusting the amount of things that took place there. When the Spirit of God is withdrawn from a place, basic human morals was no longer present anymore. Because during the siege, someone decided to destroy the food supply. During the siege... 
Parents begin to turn against their children, children against their parents. During the siege, the killings and murder begin to happen. They became so hungry, many of them actually used to take the horse saddles and chew on the leather. And cannibalism started happening. In fact, by the time the Roman soldiers actually broke into it, Josephus records they were completely appalled by what they found inside that capital. In fact, Josephus says these words, the best of friends would often come to blows over a small piece of bread. He was actually outside the city at this time. In fact, when he was trying to appeal to the Jews, just give up to the Romans. They said they'll let you have your temple. They said they'll let you live. Someone actually threw a dart right at him and almost killed him. He says these words, the best of friends would often come to blows over a small piece of bread. Children would often rip food from their parents' mouth. Neither brother nor sister had mercy upon the other. A bushel of corn was more precious than gold. Driven by hunger, some ate manure, some the cinches of their saddles, some the leather stripped from their shields. Some still have hay in their mouths when their bodies were found. Some sought to escape starvation by means of their own filth. So many died of starvation that 115,000 corpses were founded in this, found in the city and buried. And friends, let me tell you something. I'm not sharing the more graphic details. You're like, what could be more graphic than that? Check it out for yourself. You see, when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem, he was weeping over the city that had rebelled against him. And he knew what was coming their way. He knew what was going to happen to them. Because when they rejected Christ, they decided to set up another ruler over themselves. And it was none other than Satan. And this is his plan for all of humanity. That even those Romans who were trying to conquer the city had more morality than those inside the city. That's how bad it got. And as they rushed into that city, because something was quite unusual, Josephus actually records that during that second siege, all of a sudden... One of the gates on the east side that took scores of men to close and to lock unlocked itself and opened up. And the Roman soldiers flooded in there. And many of them were so appalled and some were very angry and frustrated over the long siege. They began to massacre and over a million Jews lost their lives. And by the time they got to the temple... Titus actually tried to stop it, but they were so angry, they began to light the whole place on fire till the temple itself was completely destroyed. And Judaism was broken during that time. I mean, this is such an intense scene. Do you know why, when you read the first chapter of Great Controversy, in fact, read the intro, it says, the purpose of this book is to give satisfactory answers to the problem of evil and suffering. The very first chapter starts off with Jesus weeping in Jerusalem. Do you know what's being communicated to us? That the first thing we need to understand about the problem of suffering is that Jesus weeps. The heart of God is broken over this sin problem. And then let me just take a step right here in another direction, but we're going to go back. You know, I preached last week and I shared some thoughts too with the Patterson Church. This should be quite a remarkable revelation as it was to me. God 
does not give sin its death penalty. Are you listening to me? And he's saying, what? No, I know God gives sin its death penalty. Now, I want you to understand something. God does not give sin its death penalty. Sin has its own death penalty. Sin is a death penalty. Do you know God's big problem with sin? It's not just a preference. You know, sometimes we, we talk about sin and we talk about obedience almost like a preference. Oh, you're not feeling, you're not doing something right? That's sin. You like to do good? Oh, that's sin right there. Having a good time? We'll call that sin. And that's because God says it and that's the end of it. And that is actually a foolish argument. God's problem with sin is not simply a preference issue. God's problem with sin is that sin causes death. It ultimately separates you from Him and separates Him from you. He has a problem with sin because it's death. Do you, are you listening to me so far, yes or no? And when we begin to understand sin like this, we begin to know what's God's big problem with this. God is the life giver. And sin is repulsive to Him because it's everything contrary to the principles of life. God doesn't give sin its death penalty. In fact, God calls that, let me be very frank with you, God calls that which leads to death sin. God calls that which leads to death sin. And so when the Bible's talking about Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death, God's not simply saying, look, I'm giving sin its death penalty. God is saying, this is what sin leads to. This is why God has a big problem with it. Because it ultimately destroys and robs you of the life God meant for you to have. Amen? And so here you begin to see this rebellion that took place. What's kind of interesting is this. Josephus actually records that when the Romans were coming in, and they were surrounding Jerusalem, they actually set up their Roman standards... And these Roman standards were these flags with these eagles and they had this sun there. And many times, whenever these standards were set up, all the Roman soldiers would bow down. It was very much a pagan concept, not just a military concept. And so all of this was right outside Jerusalem during this siege. And many of the Christians recognized the words of Jesus and said, wait a minute, Jesus told us That when we start seeing these things happen, we need to leave the city. But now the question is, wait a minute, how can we leave the city now? That's when all of a sudden the Roman soldiers decided to leave for some apparent mystery. And at that moment, all the Christians actually took off. In between AD 68 and AD 70, they took off. And prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, AD 70, to the Jerusalem, Christians fled to the Decapolis Decapolis city of Pella. And friends, it's so interesting, not one Christian perished. Not one Christian perished. Do you want to know why those Jews held on so tight? Why didn't they just give up? Why didn't they just give in to those Romans? They could have walked away. And you want to know what the real issue is? They did not want anything to threaten their national Identity. Read the book of Jeremiah. Many times God told his people, Hey, when this enemy is coming in, Nebuchadnezzar is coming in to sack 
the sack Jerusalem, just surrender to him, he will let you live. They actually had an example of this. Instead, they did not want to lose their national identity. They held on so tight to the peril and eventually death of their own lives. Very interesting. Jesus said something that I want us to pay attention to. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken, by, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him un- understand. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the what? Mountains. Now notice these words. Let him who ha- who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Because Jesus understood the magnitude of what was going to happen. And then notice what he says about this future event. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the what? He was talking to Sabbath keepers, friends. We're getting somewhere with this. You just hang on. Jesus gave a very special warning to these people when this time would happen. He says, look, do not go back to your house. When you have opportunity, run, 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 run. You get out of Dodge, get out of the city. By the way, what does the word get out of Dodge mean? You don't know either. Okay. I've just heard so many people say that, you know, growing up in America, I say things that I don't even realize what they mean. But either way, get out of the city. Get out of the city. But he tells them something interesting. He says, look. If you're on your rooftop, he says, jump off and take off running. He says, when you're in the field working, don't go back. What he was trying to tell the people, listen to my words. There will not be time to go back. There will not be time to look back. The things of this world, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. The things of this world always need to be secondary to the things of God. Can you say amen to that? He was telling these Christians, and these Jerusalem Christians, they followed the advice, and they were saved. You know why? Because they placed the words of God over the things of this world. You know, I've realized to myself, and I believe this is a lesson God wants all His people to know. When God says, move, it's time to move. When God says sit still, it's time to sit still. We've got to learn to hear God's voice now. Because when bigger things come our way and bigger tests come our way, bigger trials come our way, we need to know, Lord, what is it? Do you want me to stay? Do you want me to keep moving? We need to learn to hear God's voice. And that's why God is teaching us many times the lessons of sacrifice and submission and surrender. He's teaching us how to listen and trust that voice when it's time to go. It's time to go. End of question. And Jesus says it's time for you to move. Move. When he says it's time for you to sit still. Sit still. Don't move. Don't move. Ladies and gentlemen, part of this is so important like never before. We need to know the voice of God. I don't trust what's happening around me. I've got to trust what I'm reading in the Word, what the Spirit of God is convicting me. Because many times the things in the world may be confusing and it may look like there's something about to happen or this is about to happen. No, no, I've got to say, wait a minute, what's the Word of God teaching me? What's the Spirit of God teaching me right now? We've got to learn to listen to the Word of God. You know why? Because this story actually has a bigger end time application. As God was speaking to literal Israel, there was a lesson for spiritual Israel. 
And the Bible foretells of a time in Revelation chapter 13 when it seems like the whole world will be going a certain direction and God wants his people to listen. Here's what Ellen White says right here in Fifth Testimonies. The time is not far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of the power on our part of the nation, the United States, in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath, the inside of the papal Rome's power and authority, will be a warning to us. It will then be time to leave the larger cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes in secluded places among the mountains. You know, I've actually deterred from talking about this for such a long time. Until I understood this and I felt like it could be communicated in a more balanced way. I'm not sure if I've got that place, but I'm still understanding this. But the abomination of desolation, when it was set up, Roman standards were set up outside the city. And when it was set up, the Christians knew the words of Christ. It's time for us to move. By the way, have you ever read when Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 6? Do you know where all the wicked are? They're in the mountains and caves. They're like, wait a minute, Pastor Nell, I thought the righteous are in the mountains. You know what's very interesting is that God's people are not going to be stuck in one spot. Learning the voice of God. In fact, we learned earlier at a previous prayer meeting, you need to start coming to prayer meeting, right? That the plagues are not going to be universal. They're going to be in different spots. God's people have got to learn movement. Learning to follow the voice of God, not staying stuck in one place, saying, okay, God, what are you up to? What are you saying to me? And so here, when this begins to happen, this situation begins to happen, and we begin to recognize, wait a minute, Roman standards are being set up. It's time for us to make some decisions. As the Spirit of God is opening up these doors. Now, I know what's going to be an inevitable thought that's to your mind that came to my own thought, mine. No way. Won't happen. Not in my lifetime. Are you kidding me? Watch the news. I read this powerful quote. To human wisdom, all this now seems impossible. Yeah, right. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Seems impossible, doesn't it? But as the restraining spirit of God shall be withdrawn from men. And they shall be under the control of Satan who hates the divine precepts. There will be strange developments. The heart can be cruel when God's fear and love are removed. So you may think, not going to happen, won't happen, it's not going to look like that. I want you to understand something. Desperate times, desperate people do desperate things. God is speaking to us. And the one lesson I'd say you should walk away with is this. Lord, what are you saying to me? Have I learned to follow your voice? Have I learned to listen to the voice of the shepherd? 
You see, the shepherd will lead his people safely. He'll lead his flock. But unless we learn to hear the voice of Christ, simply knowing about things, it's not enough. Friends, God is calling us to make a commitment, a, a, just this decision. Lord, I want to start hearing your voice like never before. I want to learn to listen to you when you're speaking to me. I need to know when it's time for me to do this or that. You know, the promise is for God's people, they would hear a voice behind them saying, this is the way walking it, whether they turn to the left or to the right. God says, I'll, I'll give you my voice. I want you to hear it. God wants to speak to his people. And if there's ever a time we need to say, Lord, what are you up to? What are you saying to me? It's now. Can't be concerned so much what's happening in our world. We've got to learn to listen to the voice of God. I've been challenged more. This whole last month and a half, God's been leading me through a personal journey. Can't share all the details with you. But I can say this, is that I know God is speaking to me. But I want him to speak to you too. And I want him to lead and guide you. That you would know my Savior leads me. My God is guiding me. He is my shepherd. Friends, we need to listen to the voice of God. We need to follow what Jesus is saying to us. That's your desire. Say, Lord, I want this to be my prayer. I want to listen to your voice more. I want to follow the voice of God. You know better than me, Lord. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven. God, we're not anything special. We're not people who understand and know all things. Lord, we are children wanting to know what our Father would have us to do. Dear Lord, this world is so confusing, but we need the voice of God. Speak to us, Lord. Shape and guide our lives. Help us to be the most useful for your kingdom. And Lord, I just want to pray a special blessing upon this church for those who have made that decision. God, bless them. I know, God, you'll lead them in the way they understand best. Thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness. Thank you for your mercy and the salvation that comes from you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.